I'll invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, we're continuing on through. We're still really in the early stages of uh, our series in Galatians. Today we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 10. But I want to begin reading in verse 1, and uh, we'll just retain uh, some of the context So Galatians chapter 1 and and verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So after a very brief greeting that we looked at last week in verses 3 to 5, Uh, Paul skips here in Galatians his usual practice of a lengthy uh, prayer of thanksgiving for the people that he's writing to. He skips this in order to launch directly into a rebuke of the Galatian churches. This departure from his normal practice, from his usual course, reveals to us the urgency of the matter at hand and perhaps reveals something of Paul's frustration or maybe his burden that he has, uh, that as an apostle that he is experiencing at their betrayal, at their abandoning of the gospel, the pure word of the gospel that he had gone and preached there and we looked at from Acts 13 and 14, suffered for, that these people had believed and responded to, this gospel had been distorted in their midst, and believers were apparently being taken in by it, at least quite a number of them apparently, And so Paul rebukes them for it here in these verses uh, 6 to 9 in particular. As I've been thinking about these verses over the last couple of weeks, and particularly this week, uh, I've had multiple conversations during this time where the damage of departing from the gospel has has been reinforced just how, how, how devastating it is. In one case, I was speaking with a couple of people, and a couple of you were there too, and, and these people understood uh, the effect. They lamented this. They're from another city somewhere else, and, and they were grieved by the lack of gospel preaching and even opening the scriptures that they found in their church that they were attending. But in another case, I was talking to someone who couldn't see it and who didn't see it, a lady who's older and has grown up going to churches, been in churches all of her life, 
And yet there was complete and utter confusion about what Christianity was about. Utter confusion about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You start to talk about sin and righteousness and judgment and Christ's sacrifice. There was just sort of this deer in the headlight look and this desire to move on to other things. Someone who is putting their hope in their own works and some spiritual experience that she has had. So many churches have indeed departed from preaching the gospel such that they are really churches in name only in the end. And and this is not something that I would say with delight. This is not something that we, uh, you know, should simply sneer at. But rather, these situations are cautionary tales for us. They are reminders of the importance of holding fast to the authority of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ as of first importance, as we read from 1 Corinthians 15. And that's, I think, precisely what this text does. It it instructs us that come what may, we are to hold fast to the gospel, for it is our only hope. If, if, if this rebuke, we don't know precisely how all of the Galatians took this letter. Uh, he's writing to a number of churches in this region. But if this rebuke was received and if it took hold, the effect would be the people would reject the false gospel that was intruding and they would hold fast to the true gospel that Paul preached to them, that he is reminding them of in this text. And so this Again, is instructing us that come what may, we are to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the first point of our outline is hold fast to the gospel, understanding that drift can indeed occur. Hold fast to the gospel, understanding that drift can occur. Again, as a reminder, we looked at a couple weeks ago, the Galatian churches were founded by Paul himself. We read about that. We looked at that in Acts 13 and 14. And yet here they are in danger. They're already at risk of abandoning the gospel. These churches that were founded by the apostle himself, this gospel that he preached there, ultimately a gospel, again, as he's already said, as we've laid out, is that is ultimately from God. It's God's message of good news to sinners. So Paul begins here, verse 6 in our text, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's astonished at what is happening. That word can suggest an element of surprise. It most certainly means that he is extraordinarily disturbed by what is happening. And it is not simply that they are drifting from the message of the gospel, but he also remarks here, he's amazed at how quickly it is happening. He says they're so quickly deserting. It's hard to know for sure and to say for sure just how long it had been since Paul's missionary journey and and now when he is writing this letter to the Galatians. It could have been as recent as just a few years. But Paul is amazed that they're deserting, as he says, him who called you in the grace of Christ. The gospel they responded to was the gospel of God's grace, that God will pardon and justify sinners on account of Christ Jesus, having died and risen again to pay the penalty for sinners. This is the gracious gift of God that brings peace between God and that sinner, as we talked about last week, as we sung about earlier. This is a gracious gift of God 
It is something that is received by faith, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something we work at and attain by our own righteousness or whatever. We receive and we, this gift by, by believing in Christ, resting in what he has accomplished. And yet, here in Galatia, as people Paul's writing to, they were believing what the Judaizers were saying. These folks who came in and were saying that you also must be circumcised in order to really be Christians. You must keep the ceremonial aspects of God's law, the old covenant law. You must essentially become Jewish if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be saved. And by accepting this, Paul makes clear in Galatians that the people of Galatia were abandoning grace instead for works and really ultimately abandoning the gospel itself. They were looking to the law now and to their own performance in it, their own obedience to the law to bring about or to complete their justification. And he says that fairly explicitly in, in chapter 5, verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. They're seeking ultimately to be justified, their right standing before God by law-keeping. And this amounts ultimately to turning to a different gospel, which we'll see in verse 7 is actually no gospel at all. It is no longer good news because, as Paul will make clear in this letter, if you want to begin relying on the law in any sense— in order to be justified and have right standing with God, then you're going to have to go the whole way and you're going to have to keep all of it. Now, this is not likely what the Judaizers were saying. They were just saying you need to get circumcised, you need to uh, become Jewish in this way, you need to be circumcised, keep the ceremonial aspects of the law. They likely weren't saying you've got to keep every single law with absolute perfection in order to be saved. But Paul's saying the logic of that is if you want to rely on the law in any sense as the instrument by which you are saved, then you have to keep it all perfectly because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the law demands. And so there's two ways. You can seek your justification by law and you're going to have to do it perfectly or you reject that way of seeking justification before God and instead you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are graciously counted righteous because of what Christ has accomplished and because of his righteousness being credited to your account. The Galatians had started down this road. They started to believe this message. Oh, I just, I have to be circumcised now in order to truly be saved. And if you carry that through logically, it is a damning message. It denies the gospel and it ultimately denies the grace of God. It puts hope in man's working and in the law and really leaves people cursed, as we'll see. So they were drifting from the gospel. We need to be honest about this. We need to be honest about this reality that drift from the gospel. What Paul calls here desertion of God, like a soldier abandoning his post, this kind of thing does occur. If we are naive about this, we naively think that our church is above or beyond this, or we're presumptuous, we let our guard down with regard to discernment in these things, then really we're placing ourselves in danger. Now a question arises here, I think, very naturally. We talk about drift and deserting God and abandoning the gospel and so on. 
We wonder, does, does, does Paul not affirm God's sovereignty in these things? If God saves to the uttermost those that he saves, if he completes the work he begins, then why is Paul warning about this? Is this speaking about people losing their salvation? And is that what I am saying, that people lose their salvation? Of course, that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Paul is saying. God will indeed save his elect and keep them to the end. Endurance and perseverance in the faith is one of the fruits. These are fruits of saving faith. The faith, as we saw last time, that God gives in his grace. We also know scripture is clear that God uses secondary means to accomplish his purposes, his sovereign purposes. So, for example, he uses means in order to preserve his people. He doesn't, you think about just, he doesn't just grab you by the arm and kind of yank you around and you just sort of go about mindlessly. He uses means to accomplish his purposes. And one of the means he uses in preserving his people is his word. And his word comes with warnings about falling away. And so when his people hear these warnings, they tremble at the thought of falling away. They tremble at the thought of losing the gospel and respond with belief, respond in faith, respond in with perseverance. The Bible nowhere calls believers or portrays life as some robotic or mindless sort of existence because God is sovereign. It does not advocate complacency in the Christian life either, though it does affirm God's sovereign providence in all things. Rather, we're told, for example, in Jude, to contend for the faith. That's an active thing we're called to do. Not, hey, God's sovereign, he's going to get whoever anyway, so just don't worry about it. We're told to strive for holiness. It's not God's sovereign, so just you know, lay back and be lazy about it. To pursue the things of the Lord, righteousness. And these commands, when we hear these things, God's people are reminded of the goodness of this, of contending for the faith, of pursuing righteousness and holiness. These commands awaken in God's people desire to pursue these very things. These are means that God uses to accomplish his work in his people. There are, of course, more means, but these are some. Furthermore, the scriptures teach us that there are those who make a profession of faith, but for whom it is ultimately a false conversion and a false profession. It is not true saving faith. Think of Jesus teaching the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, for example, there are those who are, the seed falls upon the, the rocky soil or the thorny soil. They, they believe, they respond positively, but in the end don't end up producing fruit. Paul is very aware. There are men like Simon the magician, if you remember from Acts chapter 8, who heard, he responded very well, he was even baptized. But then he eventually went on to reveal himself as still being in the bond of iniquity. And as Peter says to him, you have no part or lot in the matter of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, in, in Galatians, in this letter, Paul addresses the people here that are imbibing this error, they're receiving this error. He addresses them as churches. He addresses them as brothers and sisters. And he calls them to believe rightly. He certainly rebukes them, and he's 
fairly harsh. But he doesn't pronounce anathema on the churches, only on the false teachers, which we'll see more in a moment. The implication is, of course, that if they continue on this path, if they reject Paul's rebuke and they decide to go along with these Judaizers, then they should not expect any hope of salvation. They would prove themselves to be false converts in the end and still under the wrath of God. But the letter doesn't jump to that conclusion. He brings instead correction to them. We see that within this church, there was drift going on. At times in Galatians, Paul expresses his concern that maybe his labor has been entirely in vain with the Galatians. We see that in chapter 4, verse 11. That is, he's concerned that maybe in the end they're really not Christians after all, and all of this was for nothing. But then he also later in chapter 5, verse 10, expresses confidence that in the end, they'll really take no other view than his. And so there there seems to be a bit of both. He's very concerned. He also has some measure of confidence that they will respond well to his rebuke. Certainly we see there was drift occurring. Was this because they were actually just unregenerate false converts? Or were they brothers and sisters who would repent of this eventually? The reality is we we don't know. We don't know what percentage of the people were made up of which category. Paul himself, as he's proclaiming this, didn't have regeneration goggles to smoke them all out. So he just calls them all to believe rightly, to believe the gospel that he preached to them. Abandonment of the gospel can come in many different ways. Obviously, it can come by unregenerate men, false teachers, twisting the gospel beyond recognition, even doing this from within the church itself. It can also happen when Christians, regenerate men, coddle such errors or downplay their dangers. In so doing, they crack the door to error, which often, in very short order, will just burst through the door and lay waste to that church or institution. And thus, abandonment of the gospel occurs. As one example of this, I think of a a president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary from the early 1900s. He was president until 1929, through the first 30 years or so of the 1900s. Uh, This was during the fundamentalist, modernist controversy, if you remember that. Basically, the the rise of of liberal Christianity, so-called. And this particular president was himself no liberal. He held to evangelical truth. But he also tried to take a mediating position between the two sides. And in so doing, he made it possible for the errors to persist within that institution. He tried to stay in between. He himself held to gospel truth, but he also provided some cover for those who were in very serious error. And so after he was no longer president and after he died... The door was just kicked wide open, and those errors had full reign, and it ushered in uh, uh, many years of outright liberalism within the institution. Drift can and does occur, and we are to be on guard against it. We must be aware of this reality. It was happening in Galatia. It occurred in Ephesus. If you read Revelation chapter 2, Laodicea, a sister church to Colossae. It has happened in Europe where the Reformation occurred. 
It has occurred in places like Princeton, which was founded as a reformed school. It can happen quickly even, as we see in Galatia. Martin Luther, I think it's in R.C. Sproul's commentary, he says that it was, I believe it was 29 years from when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, 1517, and kicked off the Protestant Reformation. That's often what we say was the beginning point. 29 years later, he preached his final sermon, and in that sermon, he laments how many who came out as Protestants have actually reverted and gone back to Roman Catholicism. He laments those who've gone on into crazy other errors and heresies of the Radical Reformation, the Radical Anabaptists, and so on. How quickly drift can occur. And so being aware of this, so far as we can help it, we are to take the view that by God's grace, not on our watch. And this is how we ought to think of it, as a watch, as those who are on guard. So we hold fast to the gospel, understanding that drift can occur. It's not for no reason that we're holding fast. Secondly, hold fast to the gospel, being convinced of what is at stake. This is not simply a disagreement about a few minor points of doctrine, or it's not just a few eggheads in some ivory tower debating, you know, they're maybe just a little too into this. This is not just an academic or scholarly debate. Everything rides on this, according to Paul. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The truth of the gospel itself was at stake. These Judaizers were distorting it such that in the end what they were proclaiming is no gospel at all. It was a different thing altogether, unworthy of being called good news. It's not really in the same category at all as what Paul had proclaimed. While some of the Galatians were evidently receiving this, Paul says that it was in fact troubling them. It was causing confusion. It was unsettling the church. And he continues in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There is one gospel. It is not Paul's gospel. It is God's gospel that has been entrusted to Paul. And so he preaches it, which is why he says, if I ever return to you with something other than what I first proclaimed, do not listen. Let me be anathema. He presents this hypothetical situation of him or perhaps an angel coming from heaven and proclaiming some other gospel. He says that they are to be accursed if they were to do such a thing. That word for accursed is the word anathema, which you may know, you may be familiar with. It means let him be damned is what it's saying. And, and that is to be damned in hell by God. It is the strongest possible curse and language. This is what, this is not said lightly. This is not written lightly by Paul. But this is indeed what is at stake. Verse 9, Paul says, As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary or against the one you received, let him be accursed. He repeats himself here. 
Verse 9, when he says, as we have said before, certainly he just wrote the same thing in, in verse 8, but I think likely what this is talking about is not verse 8, but that he has actually told them these things before. Perhaps when he was with them still, he, he told them, this is the gospel, period. You die on this hill. Anyone else who comes with a different message, let him be accursed. Do not listen to him. He's just repeating what he has already taught them here. He has warned. He has exhorted them to stand fast, to categorically reject those coming with contrary so-called gospels. And this would apply to anyone who preaches something against the true gospel of Jesus Christ that would twist it and corrupt it, rendering it not good news. I think it's worth noting, saying that not every issue in the Christian life is a gospel issue. That phrase, gospel issue, uh, can, is often applied to all manner of things, and it depends how someone is using it, um, but I think it's unhelpful to apply it to everything. Virtually everything can somehow have some tie uh, to the gospel. But things like societal justice, this is important, but it's not a gospel issue. Parenting, this is a very important topic and matter, not a gospel issue though. That's good news, by the way. Now, I would agree, of course, and affirm that the gospel will shape how we think about all these other areas. It will affect, it ought to affect and shape how we think about our parenting and how we go about our parenting. But this is not the gospel, and so strictly speaking, it is not a gospel issue. And so we don't need to go around anathematizing and cursing every Christian who disagrees with us about every single thing. We might not have an agreement on precisely what justice demands in a certain circumstance. It's not the gospel. We may not necessarily agree about the best way to express love in a particular situation. That's important, it matters, it's worth figuring out and trying to determine. But not a gospel issue. We can seek wisdom, deal graciously with others, and even have some disagreements and seek unity in them without cursing people for everything. However, here in Galatians, what Paul again is dealing with is a distortion of the gospel, of the thing that sinners need to believe and rest in in order to be saved, in order to be justified before God. He is dealing with an undermining of justification by grace alone, through faith in Christ Jesus alone, apart from works. And for Paul and for us, this is a hill to die on. The gospel was at stake. The Christian message, the Christian mission is what was being distorted, is Paul's wording, uh, perverted. One message saves the gospel that Paul proclaimed, God's gospel to the world. The other comes with a curse upon its preachers. And anyone who believes this gospel of the Judaizers will remain in their sins and remain under the curse of God's law upon them for their sins. There is no salvation in placing hope in your own law-keeping in any way. 
And so when the gospel is corrupted, we deal firmly with purveyors of such wickedness. Again, I I do want to notice that Paul doesn't tell the Christians that in Galatia, that simply they're just all accursed. He, He pronounces this curse upon the preachers of this gospel. We can distinguish between men and women occupying pulpits in our own day, spreading false gospels, and those souls sitting there hearing them. Now, if those people sitting there are rebuked and are corrected and hear the true gospel and they reject that, that's no small matter. They are guilty for that. They are guilty for, they are culpable for what they believe, for sure. But there is a greater evil in then preaching that false gospel and, and, and under the guise of it being God's word and the gospel that saves. Again, the point of conflict in Galatia was the Judaizers insisting on circumcision and law-keeping in order to be saved, in order to be truly a Christian. Thus, for them, salvation ultimately was coming through faith and their obedience to keeping this law. This was really the very error, the very thing that the entire Reformation was about. It is something that we must continue to be very aware of today. There are those who teach as if the instrument by which we receive our salvation, our justification, is not simply faith, receiving and resting in Christ Jesus and what he has done, but it is our faithfulness. Faith is often then equated with faithfulness, and it's our believing and our working together that justifies. Of course, there's all kinds of ways the gospel can become corrupted, and we don't have time to go through them all now. It's not just by corrupting sola fide that we're justified by faith alone. There's the prosperity gospel, which promises material wealth and health as a promise of the gospel to be received by faith. So if you believe these things are yours. A very common false gospel in churches in our time, in our day, is the belief that the gospel is really about loving God and loving your neighbor. Loving God and neighbor are, of course, important things. They are law, though. They are commands. But for many people, this is the sum and the substance of Christianity. Jesus shows us how to love people. Open yourselves up to Jesus so you can learn to love others as well. I've heard that preached at a funeral. Really, Jesus becomes, in this sense, a moral example. We just follow after him. He's just showing us how to do it, how to love, how to live. This isn't the gospel. Certainly, Jesus shows us how to love others. He shows us how to live our lives. He is a moral example to us. But this is not the gospel because we cannot do it with perfection. Of course, there's various other heresies. Numbers we could point to that corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. But anytime and anywhere these corruptions occur, it is all out defense of the truth of the gospel from us, from his people. Because if we get that wrong, the rest of it simply doesn't matter. That, that's really what, what is clear in what Paul is saying. Again, 
he, he comes right down to this issue of justification by faith alone. And if you do not have the alone, then you're still in your sins and what, this doesn't matter. He brings it all down to this point. This leads to the final point. Thirdly, hold fast to the gospel, aware of the cost. Hold fast to the gospel, aware of the cost. If we want to hold here, if we want to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude puts it, it's going to cost. And our Lord taught us to count the cost of following him. And this is something we can do joyfully, but it is something we need to be realistic about, honest about. We need to understand. We need to come to grips with it. Paul knew the cost. Look at verse 10. For am I now speaking the sorry, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And when we think about what Paul was up against in Galatia, we try to understand what exactly the Judaizers were teaching. Uh, part of what we have to do to understand this is engage in what is called mirror reading of the text. So it's kind of like when you hear one person talking on the phone, you just hear one side of the conversation and you're trying to figure out what the other person is saying on the other end. And sometimes you can figure it out with great accuracy and other times it can be a little bit difficult. This is the way it is. We read Paul and we're trying to understand. We hear one side of the conversation. We're trying to understand what the other side was saying. There are other scripture texts like in Acts 15, for example, it talks about uh, the Judaizers as well that, that help us in Philippians and other places. Uh, but part of what we're doing is trying to engage in, in this mirror reading of the text. And one of the things that seems very plain in Galatians is that Paul was being accused of, of being a man pleaser. He was trying to just please men. So why did Paul not tell us that we had to be circumcised to be saved? And these Judaizers apparently are saying, well, it's because he wants, he's trying to please you. He knows you're not going to like that message to the men of Galatia. And so he just hasn't included that because he doesn't want to you know, lose your favor or whatever. He's trying to make things easier. Now, certainly there are people who do this. There are people who try to shave off the rough edges of biblical teaching to try to make things more palatable to sinful man. But this was not Paul, and this was not what Paul was doing. If you recall, when we talked about some of the background of this book, Paul, when he was in Galatia, in Acts 13 and 14 there, we read of his ministry and we read of his suffering and he was stoned at one point and left for dead. That was in Galatia. And he asks now, am I now, that is, as I'm writing this and I'm rebuking you, am I now really seeking the approval of men? Why would I be writing this? This, this doesn't make sense. Who, who am I trying to please here? He's not trying to please or flatter man. This has never been his driving force. It's evident in his life. Again, he, he, he preached even to the point of being stoned nearly to death. If he was trying to please man, he says, he was in the wrong business. Right? I would not be a servant or a slave of Christ. And the reason for that is a servant or a slave of Christ is just that. They are a slave of Christ. And Jesus himself taught that if they 
hated him and persecuted him, the master, then they would do the same thing to those who serve him. Paul knew this. In Acts, when Paul was converted to Christ, remember what the Lord Jesus says to Ananias? I'm going to show Paul how much he's going to suffer for my name. Paul knew this and bore the marks on his body that came from his service to Christ. It's interesting he doesn't marshal that right here as, as evidence. Uh, but again, at the, at the end of, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, at the very end of the book, after everything's been said in 617, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Again, kind of this reminder, remember, by the way, when I was with you, how I was left for dead. Those scars surely accompanied Paul all of his days. He was not a people pleaser. He loved the Galatians. But now, out of that love, he was forced to write them harshly, directly, confrontationally, to snap them out of this stupor. This is loving of Paul to do. It's tough, but it's loving. And there is the chance that many, perhaps, would not appreciate his efforts. There's a a distinct chance that many would despise him for this even further. Perhaps even these false teachers that were in in Galatia would seize upon this letter and try to pick it all apart and try to further cast aspersion upon Paul and upon his motives and so on. He would have all that question. We see in in 1 and 2 Corinthians, it's apparent, there are at least two more letters to that church, to the church at Corinth. And there's this back and forth and this laboring to try and clear things up. It was not just that Paul would send a letter and oftentimes everything just turned out wonderfully. He continued to be maligned. The gospel continued to be undermined in places. Paul knows this and yet he he has to. He serves Christ. He has to enter in. He doesn't get to choose his battles. The gospel is being corrupted. He, he, He must fulfill his duties. And so he writes this message. He writes this letter to them. To uphold the one and true, the only saving gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that sometimes off Christians think romantically about contending for the faith. We look back at former age, ages, or a former preacher. We look back at someone with the influence of a Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther, maybe Calvin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, George Whitfield, whoever it is, some other gospel preacher. We think back with nostalgia and think how nice that would be. But we don't really truly understand what they suffered. We don't really understand their sufferings. And frankly, if we did, we wouldn't really want those sufferings. Spurgeon, I would remind you, died at the age of 57. In part, it's generally agreed, in part at least, because of the toll of ministry upon him. It had a physical effect upon his body. The stress of it all, the weight of it all. I know that many of you have suffered for standing for the gospel in various ways. Your reputation, perhaps, has taken a hit. Maybe it's been tarnished. Family relations have been damaged You're still not at peace with family members. You've been run out of your town or perhaps a church. You've been maligned. You've been slandered. You've been misrepresented. If we are to live our lives defending the truth of the gospel, then we can expect this. 
And we should receive the words of Jesus when he says, Blessed are you when men revile you on account of me. We are not those who are going to be given the benefit of the doubt by everybody and loved by all. But we take comfort in the fact that Jesus was not loved by all when he walked the earth. The Apostle Paul, many others, So even as we rejoice in God's faithfulness, in his work and fruitfulness around us, we can expect also a measure of suffering that will come with defending the truth of the gospel. And so I would just encourage you again to resolve once more that it is worth any suffering that will come your way. The gospel is the only hope for yourselves. It is the only hope for your children. It is the only hope for the entirety of the world. And so let us stand firm here. And let us not grow weary of contending wherever the battle may rage, in whatever way we must. And I think this is, I'm glad for this reminder in this text today. Because it can become tiresome. It can become perhaps even lonely at times. We don't want to be disliked by other people. We want to just be able to just pretend maybe or act as if our differences are no big deal. But if it hits on the gospel itself, then all bets are off. There is no unity with such a person. We defend the truth of the gospel. I want to read again from 1 Corinthians 15, just a few verses there. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to another church, the church in Corinth, says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins to satisfy God's holy and just wrath against us. He was buried. The eternal Son of God who took on flesh truly died. And then he rose again from the dead on the third day. His body ultimately did not see decay, as David wrote in Psalm 16. His sacrifice pleased God and truly redeems all who believe in him. There is no other way to peace with God. There is no other way to be forgiven. There is no other way to come out from under his wrath, to be reconciled to God Almighty. It's the only way. We do not do this. Again, we do not accomplish this. We do not add to the work of Christ with our own works. We are not justified by God's grace through faith and some other thing we do. It is by God's grace through faith in Christ, period. And so trust in him. Believe in him. Look away from yourself. Confess your sin to God. Acknowledge that you justly and rightly deserve his wrath. If you have not done, believe in Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Make all of your hope and boast in him. 
For God will and does graciously pardon all your sins on account of what Christ has done for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. There is no other gospel. There is no other way. We hold fast to this no matter the cost. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we once again come to you thankful. Not one of us here can, can, can claim innocence before you. We are fallen in Adam and we have committed many sins of our own in thought and word and deed and action. And your word is clear that there is one way there is one way to be reconciled to you. There is one hope of salvation, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would renew in us a love for this good news. Father, that every person here would first believe this, and secondly, that we would be renewed in our desire to get this message out to others. Forgive us where we have been complacent, Forgive us where we have been fearful. I pray that you would, in your grace and patience, purge from us any fear of man that yet lingers. Father, if we think about our own selves, we are easily discouraged at any prospect of the gospel advancing and of men and women believing, for we are so very imperfect and fragile and sinful people. And yet we're reminded that even the Apostle Paul himself wrote in your word, inspired by the Spirit, that we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are indeed weak. And yet your message is not. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Father, I pray that you give us greater clarity in these matters. I pray that you give us great joy in placing all of our hope in Christ Jesus, that we would not weary of repenting of our sins and confessing them to you, knowing that Christ is a great Savior. Father, I pray that it would be great joy to us to rest all of our hope in Christ, to know that you deal with your people in a gracious manner. Father, we pray that you would give us strength to stand firm, Father, only by your help and with your grace could we do that, could we resist corruption. So we pray to this end that you would glorify yourself in our midst, that you would bring many more into the fold who do not yet know Christ, who do not yet believe. Father, as we think about false gospels of our own day and people standing up preaching in the name of Christ that are not preaching Christ or the gospel, but some other form of religion borrowing words from your word and confusing people and leaving people in their sins, Father, would you silence these voices and raise up men who will preach your word. Father, this is what a lost world needs to hear. So we pray that you would give us opportunity to share Christ and proclaim him to our friends and neighbors and co-workers and wherever we are. We pray that you would bear fruit in those conversations. I thank you for the conversations that are ongoing. 
that have been occurring. Strengthen your people to continue to share. Father, we submit all things to your hand. We trust that you are good, and we look to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.